gotta do what I gotta do. Welcome to episode number 10 of the MMA Rundown. We're coming back after a bye week from last week, but obviously now we've got UFC 211 coming up this week and a few other big events going on. I'm Ben Gordon. I'll be your host as always. And to get started right off the bat, I'm going to just start looking at the four big fights on the UFC 211 card. I could kind of make a note or make a segment specifically for the Alvarez versus Poirier fight, but I'll just mix it in with the rest of the bunch for UFC 211. But starting off, the main event of the card for UFC 211 is going to be a rematch between Stipe Miocic and Junior Dos Santos. When these two initially fought, this was after Dos Santos obviously had lost his title to Cain Velasquez. Um, in the fight that he had lost, obviously, it was a pretty brutal beatdown. There were some concerns with him, and I feel like these concerns still exist, even with the hot streak he has now, where he just isn't the same fighter that he used to be. He Offensively, he's a little a little more tentative than he used to be, and obviously defensively, you know, he doesn't take a shot as well, and that's because he took so many shots against Cain Velasquez. But with this fight with Stipe, it was going to be a really big opportunity for Stipe to possibly get a huge win over a former champ and work his way into the title picture at the time. And ultimately, he didn't get the win in that fight, but it was a fight where he still looked really good, and it made it pretty clear that Stipe was ready to compete against the top of the division. Uh, obviously down the line, Stipe won a few more fights, got his title shot against Fabrizio Verdum, knocked him out, and obviously the rest is history. Now he's the champion and will be defending the guy, the, or defending his belt against the last guy who beat him. So the real question here is going to be, what's changed since the last two fought? Who's gotten better? Has anyone actually gotten worse? What game plans are going to change? Uh, where does the fight go from here? Now, as far as the Vegas odds go, even though Stipe did lose the first fight, he's the favorite to win this fight. I agree with them. I think that's probably a fair way to look at it. Stipe has been getting a lot better ever since um, the JDS fight. He still has kind of a fairly simple game in that he's a really good wrestler, really good boxing. Um, on the feet, he's very dangerous. If he's having trouble there, he'll take you down and on top, even though he's not exactly the most sophisticated jiu-jitsu player. He's really good on top. He's really good at getting out of submissions and defending submission attempts once they're there. And really, even though Junior Dos Santos has a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's not like he's a killer off his back. Certainly no more than a guy like Fabrizio Verdum is. So for Stipe, this fight, it, it feels like it's going to be pretty similar to the first fight in some ways, but I feel like his high points from the first fight are just going to be happening more often, whereas for JDS, his high points won't be happening as often. And even in the fights that JDS has looked good in recently, including that Ben Rothwell fight, it was a fight where you feel like the JDS who is champion wins that fight quickly, whereas this JDS, he was just really tentative about picking the shots. He wasn't throwing too many combos. He was kind of single-shotting a lot, throwing a couple shots here and there, but he wasn't really all that aggressive and looking to just exchange with Rothwell too much. It was just really tactical on his part. And it, it got him the win. You can't blame him for that. It's not like that's a problem. But the question is, is that... If we're looking at this matchup being done again right now in the middle of 2017 versus when it first happened, it seems like as tentative as JDS kind of was in the first matchup compared to some of his previous fights even before then, it seems like that Rothwell fight was a step even more in that direction. And it seems like the JDS that we're going to be seeing in this fight on Saturday is just going to be... I mean, I hate to say it, but it's just going to be a more dumbed-down... I guess dumbed isn't the right word to say, but kind of um, just a less effective, less aggressive version of JDS than what we've even seen before, and that's not a good way to fight Stipe Miocic, because Stipe will he'll hit you hard, he'll find, a, he'll find his shots, and once he gets on you, he'll he'll come after you hard. And I kind of figure that's how this fight's going to go. I See, again, the, the first fight when they had when they had Stipe landed a lot of really hard shots, and you'd almost 
figure that after the cane fights that, that would be enough to put Dos Santos out, and it wasn't. But I feel like Dos Santos' chin isn't getting any better since it ha- since that last fight. Stipe's boxing is getting better since that last fight. And I think to assume that Stipe is going to be able to find a shot, I would say probably in the second or third round and be able to get a finish, I, I think that's a pretty likely scenario for this. Hate to hate to say that with JDS. JDS is just a really friendly guy, a really nice guy. You hate to see him go through the struggles he's gone through, but when fans were saying after the Cain Velasquez fights, hey, maybe we, we've seen enough years shaved off your life. I mean, you've had a great career. Maybe it's about time to call it quits. This matchup against Stipe Miocic is not a good matchup for Junior Dosanos at this point in his career. Really, I'd like to see him kind of wind his career down anyway just because of the damage that he's taken. Even though he's a very skilled fighter, he's a good fighter to watch. It's just... He's one of those fighters where as a fan of MMA, you feel guilty watching him fight because you feel like you're watching somebody who's just aging a lot quicker than they naturally would because of the fight game, and it's kind of disheartening to watch. And Hopefully if JDS loses this fight, it's not in a too brutal of a fashion. Maybe it's like a flash knockdown and the ref jumps in early or something, but I feel like something bad's going to happen here. I hate to say it, and I really hope that on next week next week's episode i'm not saying we'll see i called it but that seems to be the path that jds has been heading down ever since the Cain velasquez fights and i guess only time will tell we'll see how this fight goes but again i'm predicting that steve miotrich is going to retain his title and defeat jds and get that win back from the first fight in the co-main event we have another title on the line this time it's the women's strawweight title between joanna and jacek and jessica andraj uh, as far as looking at this fight from a technical standpoint, you'd figure that this fight's going to go Yoana's way, but there have been some rumblings that have been going around, and I feel like there's some truth to them, too, that I'll kind of get into here. So a lot of, there's been a lot of talk made about for Yoana and Jacek that in her first couple fights in the UFC, she was incredibly dominant, was knocking people out, uh, looked really strong, but in the last few fights, even though she's been so much better technically than her opponents, uh, she hasn't exactly looked that great. She's gotten rocked at times, um, landing a lot of shots, but not necessarily getting the most damage out of them. I think that last fight with uh, Kovalkiewicz is a really good example where those two ended up having a fight that was mostly on the feed, and if you look at how Karolina Kovalkiewicz fights, she's a very tough fighter, but she's not exactly the most technical fighter. So for her to be on the feet with Joanna for 25 minutes and to not get knocked out and even have her moment in the fourth round where she rocked Joanna. It's a bit concerning, both that Joanna got rocked in that fourth round the way that she did. It wasn't like it was the hardest shot you've ever seen that really that put her in a tough spot. But also just the fact that Joanna, even though she's still landing a lot of these really long combos, she'll strike four or she'll string four or five shots in together. It seems like all the shots that she's throwing, like any of them individually, aren't exactly all that damaging. And even when she combines them together, it's not like she's rocking people or putting too much damage on them. Now, granted, even the knockout one she's had in the past, it's just been really cumulative, like the Jessica Penne fight or the Carlos Barza fight, where she was just landing over and over and over and over again, and eventually getting them up against the cage and just finishing them off from there. So it's not like we've ever really seen Yoani on Jacek just head-kicking someone like Holly Holm did to Ronda Rousey or landing one-punch knockouts, kind of like Mighty Mouse versus Joseph Benavides. You, you weren't seeing those in the past, but even in the most recent fights, that's sort of been the case as well. So with Jessica Andrade, this is another similar type of situation to the Kovalkiewicz fight in a way. We're on the feet. Uh, Andrade, again, she's she's tough, but she's not exactly the most technical striker you're ever going to see. And in theory, if this fight stays on the feet, which it most likely will, you'd figure Koval, or not Kovalkiewicz, that Yoan Yon Jacek's going to have the advantage if this fight stays on the feet. 
But the concern with Joanna getting rocked in the Kovalkiewicz fight, the concern with her not necessarily being a shot fighter, but looking like she's kind of regressing in a way. You don't, I don't really feel like the Joanna Janjacek that beat Jessica Penne versus Joanna Janjacek versus Kovalkiewicz. I don't feel like those two fighters, there's a really big difference in a positive way. And usually over that period of time, you'd like to see more improvement. And it doesn't feel like Joanna's getting a whole lot better. But again, the thing with MMA that's kind of tough from the outside is that we only see these these guys or girls fight once, twice, maybe three times a year. And that's all we can really judge off of them. We're not actually seeing them in the gym. So you don't always know how good they are if they're having a tough matchup that makes them look bad, if they're just having a really bad day, when in general they're actually a lot better. But from what we've seen from Joanna, there is reason for concern. And in another fight like this one with Andrade, even if Joanna's outlanding her, Andrade can hit very hard. And if she catches Joanna, there's a very real possibility that she's going to be able to take her out. So as far as who I'd predict to win this fight, I think, he, uh, again, like I've said in the past, and this isn't my thing, it's a, it's said in a lot of places, if you're predicting a fight in general, unless you're talking about a fight with an Anthony Rumble Johnson or someone who just constantly finishes people early, the best way to predict it is, if I were to tell you this fight went to a decision, tell me who you think won that decision, and usually that's the person who's going to win the fight. And if I asked you right now, or if I told you right now that this fight's going to a decision, you'd assume that over five rounds, Joanna's going to win the fight. So for that reason, I have to pick Joanna. But if she gets clipped and she gets finished, I will not be all that surprised. And as fans, I don't think you should be all that surprised. I know it's going to seem odd. I know Joanna's been the the one dominant champ at Strawweight. Granted, Carlos Barza was the first champion, so she's not the only champion there. But in a way, it sort of it sort of feels like it's always been Joanna's division. But again, if Joanna gets knocked off. Don't be shocked, um, but but hopefully for her, if she's still able to win, she can keep building on building on her star and get a fight with Rose Nami Yunus, and maybe at some point Yoana will start to move in on the Ronda Rousey territory, although I don't know that she'll ever be as popular as her, but again, this seems like a fight where there's a real chance that is going to get knocked out here, and I'm just saying, don't be surprised if it happens, but if you're putting money on this fight, these are about as good of odds as you're going to get in for you for a win for Yoni and Jacek, so I I'm gonna be betting on Yoana, but again, don't be shocked if she loses. Ever since Tyron Woodley's controversial and incredibly boring title defense against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, we've been wondering who exactly was gonna be next for him at welterweight. Obviously, Maya was supposed to be the guy, but he signed on to take this fight with Jorge Masvidal, and obviously now this fight's gonna be coming up this Saturday. So you'd assume if Maya gets the win, it's gonna give him his title shot finally. If Masvidal wins, perhaps he sneaks into the title picture after getting wins over Jake Ellenberger, getting a win over, I'm trying to think who else Masvidal beat. So his most recent win was against Ellenberger. He beat Cowboy Cerrone. Um, Cowboy, of course, coming off of a fight with Matt Brown where he got knocked, knocked down a couple weeks or, or a couple months earlier and wasn't exactly his best performance, but you can't take that away from Masvidal. Still a big win for him. And then obviously if he gets a win over Maya, that'd be huge for him. And whether or not that warrants a title shot or not at this point that may not matter he may still get it uh also in the picture people are talking about how nick diaz might be a possibility for a, a title shot at 170 hopefully that's not the case he doesn't really deserve it and especially if maya wins i i would hate to see nick diaz jump ahead of damian maya for a title shot at this point but if we're breaking down this fight one of the interesting things that i've noticed about it in the lead-up is the way that jorge masvidal has talked about damian maya's grappling and how he is at least outwardly appearing as though he's supremely confident that even if Maya is able to get him down, which he says he's most likely not going to, he's not going to have too many issues in getting him off and defending himself and not getting finished. 
And as far as whether or not I think that he's right on that, I mean, to an extent, there there can be some truth to that. Obviously, and I mentioned this with the Robert Whitaker versus um, and all the Jack Ray Souza fight. A lot of times when you have these great gra- grapplers, they're able to dominate people because they're so technically proficient. But a lot of times when you're so good at something, sometimes people just make an assumption, oh, crap, this is Damian Maya. He's got a hook in on me. I'm fucked. Instead of thinking, oh, this is just a guy with a hook on me. Let me just get out of here. And when Whitaker had his back taken momentarily, he didn't treat it like, oh, shit, Jack Ray's got my back. He treated it like, oh, well, this guy's got my back, but he's a little high up. Let me try to shake him off, get him out of there. He was able to do so. He got him off and then was able to work his game plan from there and eventually get the finish. So if Masvidal is under the impression, or at least feels as though, yes, he's Damian Maya, but I'm a very good grappler, too. If he gets a good position on me, I'll be fine. To an extent, that can help in that it's going to mean that he's not going to, he's unlikely to be in a position where if Maya doesn't quite have control of him, he'll just kind of see it and be like, oh shit, Maya's got me here. I'm fucked. I've got to just defend now when there's actually a chance for him to get out. So I think that's a positive for him going in. But again, the, a lot of what he's been saying is that he thinks his takedown defense is what's going to matter here. And the problem with having that approach with Damian Maya is that Maya will pull guard on you. Like, having takedown defense is good if the guy you're going against just wants to, is only going to just try to take shoot for a takedown and work from there. A lot of times, Jacare likes to just shoot for the takedown, although he'll occasionally pull too. But with Damian Maia, his takedown game is so unique in that even if you, even if Jorge Masvidal does well with Colby Covington in the room, Colby's got different takedowns than Maya does, and Colby's never going to shoot for a takedown, not get it, fall into half guard, hell, even pull mount and then try to grab a leg and then pop up on a single and finish it. That's what uh, that's what Damian Maya does, and the problem is that if Maya gets you with that once, if he pulls even pulls mount on you, gets to a single leg, takes you down, well, all of a sudden, now that's whole round, what exactly are you going to do, Jorge Masvidal? Are you going to kind of use your butterfly hooks and get up? Because, again, the butterfly game is what Maya is incredibly good at encountering. He's got that tripod, the, the whole tripod series he likes to work. Obviously, I had mentioned this in the past, but... I'll keep saying it every time Damian Maia fights because it's well worth watching. BJJ Scout has a whole video series on the way that Damian Maia passes guard, and a lot of it's based off of using a tripod to kind of get his hips up in the air, uh, lessen the effect of a butterfly hook, and work his way past the guard. So is that what Masvidal's going to do if he does get taken down? Uh, what kind of success he's going to have? We, obviously, we've seen fighters in the past, including Matt Brown, who went all the way until the, into the third round where they get taken down early in the round and they survive. There's no reason to believe that Jorge Masvidal can't survive at points, but this is a three-round fight. If you are forced to survive two rounds, you better get a finish, otherwise you're still going to lose. And to think that Damian Mai can get a couple takedowns, or whether he pulls guard into it, or whether he just shoots and drags him to the mat. I mean, Damian Mai's got so many different ways to take you down that are so unusual, and this is something that Chael Sonnen got unnecessary heat for in the past, where he said that Damian Mai has terrible wrestling, but it works. And what he's saying is that, like, just pure technique-wise, if you just train with pure wrestlers, the stuff Maya does is, is stuff that you'll usually get corrected for, but he finds a way to make it work. So if Maya just gets two takedowns in two different rounds, even if he doesn't get his finish, he's still likely to win them fight, unless Masvidal can beat him on the feet. And again, when you're worried that the guy, is about to t- the guy you're fighting is going to take you down, it makes your striking so much less effective, because for, for one, you're not going to want to throw your kicks. So that's going to take take away a big weapon. But even your punches, how many strikes are you going to put into a combo before you're worried about the guy shooting under you and taking you down? So if you're starting at just single shot, you know maybe you can win a round or two here or there. But again, that's going to mean that either Masvidal's game plan is just going to be to jab for 15 minutes, or it's going to 
I, I, again, I, I don't really know what he plans on doing to win this fight, but against a guy like Damian Maia, you have to be so spectacular, and I don't I don't see that from Masvidal. I, I see a guy in Masvidal who's very good everywhere, but he's not great in any one spot. And against a guy like Maya who is fantastic in one spot, I guess you could argue, too, with his offensive wrestling and the way that he's able to just take downs, but then also his jiu-jitsu, obviously. That's going to be a tough matchup, and... As much as Masvidal is selling that he's going to be able to counter that and stop it, as much as Tyron Woodley, who is at least affiliated with him with ATT, is going around saying this is a bad matchup for him and he shouldn't have taken it, I don't see Damian Maya losing this fight. I see him winning the fight, and I really hope to see him given a title shot after this and not have some guy like Nick Diaz pluck it away from him or have GSP come in at the last second. Just Maya's earned his title shot. He's getting older, kind of like Jacare, and you don't want to see Maya lose lose a title fight where it looks like oh a younger Maya might have done better but this Maya wasn't there where that was kind of the case with the Jock Ray Whitaker fight where Jock Ray just felt so slow out there it's like either Whitaker's really fast or Jock Ray is starting to decline and it's a shame so again Damian Maya should win this fight um it may not be the most exciting fight it may be a very interesting fight I know at least once the fight starts it's gonna be very interesting to see what way it goes but I, I feel like once once we're about a minute or two in, you'll kind of have an idea of how this fight's going to go, and then from there, um, we'll see who our, who the next welterweight contender is going to be. Another huge fight that I'm looking forward to on this card is Frankie Edgar versus Yair Rodriguez. So Yair's been winning a lot of really good, or a lot of really impressive wins. He's getting a lot of impressive wins against some of the guys who are lower ranked in the division. Uh, obviously, BJ Penn was a big name, but at this point, uh, 2017 BJ Penn... I don't even know that he's a top 30 featherweight, but it's still a big name to have on his resume. And in a way, I guess if you're BJ and you want to keep fighting, well, here's what you asked for. But outside of that, he had the win over Andre Feely, he had the win over Alex Caceres. But now he's going to be stepping up and fighting a guy in Frankie Edgar, who arguably is the number three guy in the division behind um, Holloway and Aldo. And again, that matchup between Holloway and Edgar, I think, would be an interesting fight. Granted, Holloway has done pretty well in the past against. Other guys who, like a Ricardo Lamas, who can wrestle and box, but Edgar is, I feel like Edgar is enough, there's enough of a space between him and Lamas where what we saw in the Lamas fight versus Hallway versus what we would see in an Edgar versus Hallway fight, there could still be a reason to suspect that it'd be a lot different. But that's beside the point. Edgar versus Yair Rodriguez is the fight that's being made right now. For Rodriguez, if he wins this fight, he immediately becomes a part of the title picture. You could potentially say that he even gets another gets a title shot after winning. The title fight in that division right now, Max Holloway versus Jose Aldo, is being booked. Um, I believe it's in June in Brazil. So if Holloway wins that fight, I don't know that you give Aldo an immediate rematch. If Aldo wins that fight, um, I mean the the Edgar fight probably doesn't happen if Edgar wins. But if Yair wins, you you'd be hard pressed to say that Frankie Edgar or that uh, Yair Rodriguez doesn't get a title shot at that point. And if he obviously if he beats Edgar, you really can't say that he's being pushed along too fast because a win over Edgar shows that he's there right now. As far as what I think is going to happen, though, it's going to be very interesting. So on the feet, Yair is going to be better at range. Uh, he's longer than Edgar, and obviously he's got the kicks too. So even just pure boxing, he would kind of have a range advantage on Edgar. But you throw on the kicks, it's also going to help him out a lot. But the problem is that at times in Yair's fights. He'll go for a lot of crazy stuff, but in doing so, he kind of puts himself in a position where he can be countered, whether it's with strikes or with, with grappling. And you feel like with a guy like Frankie Edgar, 
he's going to have no problem if yeah, your throws a crazy kick at him to catch that kick, take him down, and just hold him down for a round. And as good as Jair is at getting up, he, he likes to throw a lot of attacks, whether he's throwing leg attacks or really going for sweeps. A guy like Frankie Edgar, he's a black belt. He's been working really well off his off the top. Uh, he's had a f- fights in the past, like the one with Charles Oliveira, where you can kind of see him go against a guy who's really aggressive off his back, whether that's, in Oliveira's case, it's more with submissions than it is with just trying to get up or trying to sweep, but... You feel like if he does get Yair down, he's probably got what it takes to hold him down. And even on the feet, yes, Yair's probably got a better chance of knocking him out. But Edgar's got good head, head movement. He's got good footwork. He's not exactly going to be the easiest guy to hit. He can probably land some good counters in this fight anyway on the feet. But I feel like where this fight's going to be decided is that either Yair's going to be his normal self and he's going to go for some crazy stuff. It's going to backfire and then Frankie's going to use it to take him down. Or Yair's going to fight a little more, I guess, conservative, not throw the, make, take those chances. But then in that case, a conservative Yair is not the best Yair, and the best Yair is going to be what you're going to need to beat a guy like Frankie Edgar. So I feel like either way, Edgar's the safe pick to take in this fight. Yair is a guy where he's so dangerous. He is, has so many kicks and so many different unique ways to, to land hard shots that, yeah, sure, there's a possibility that he knocks out Edgar, but I wouldn't count on it. I wouldn't bet on it, and if we're talking about betting here, I'm taking Frankie Edgar to win this fight by decision. So just a quick recap, I'm picking Steve Miocic to win the rematch against Junior Dos Santos. I feel like this is probably a knockout in the second or third round. Uh, in the Ioana versus Jessica Andrade fight, I am picking Ioana and Jacek to win this fight by decision, but I will not be surprised if Andrade is able to win this fight by knockout. Uh, for Maya versus Masvidal, again, I, I'm predicting Damian Maya win this fight. Um, as far as whether I think it would be decision or sub, I, I feel like it could go either way. Masvidal would probably be able to defend for a while, but I, I could certainly... If I have to make a pick, I'll say that Maya does get the submission here. He does get a rear naked choke. Um, and then Frankie Edgar versus Yair Rodriguez. I think that Frankie Edgar is going to be able to win this fight by decision. He's going to be able to take advantage of Yair's wildness and get him down to the ground and be able to keep him there, be able to dominate and get a win, probably 30-27 on all three judges' scorecards. The final fight on the main card is going to be a very big fight at flyweight. Whether or not it'll determine the next flyweight challenger, I don't believe it will. I think Ray Borg is probably going to be the next guy there. Although, if Henry Cejudo loses to Sergio Pettis, there could be an argument made that Sergio Pettis would be the next guy up. But even still, I think Ray Borg's probably got that locked down. Either way, just to break this fight down really quickly, obviously Cejudo is coming off of two straight losses. He had the loss to Mighty Mouse, where he... Uh, was able, he got him taken down, or he took him down once early in the round, but um, Mighty Mouse was able to use a butterfly, his butterfly hooks to kind of create some space, kicked away, got back up, and then when they clinched again, Mighty Mouse just landed enough knees to the body that Cejudo eventually went down and got the loss. And then the next fight was the fight with Joseph Benavides, which was a very close fight. I thought they probably got the decision right, giving it to Benavides, but it was extremely close. Either way, it proved that Cejudo is amongst the best flyweights in the world. He's ranked number two right now, which is a fair ranking for him. And you feel like he's going to keep it getting better over time. A guy like Sergio Pettis was one where there was a lot of hype behind him. And for a while, we were kind of we were kind of waiting for him to eventually get to the top of his division and get to a title shot that never really quite happened. This will be a good opportunity for him against Cejudo. Pettis is pretty good off his back, pretty similar to Anthony in a way. Um, not quite as dangerous on the feet, but still a pretty good kickboxer. But I feel like this is the kind of matchup for Cejudo that's going to work out really well in his favor. I'd assume that Cejudo should be able to take him down relatively easy and be able to control him from there. As far as whether or not he gets a finish, I would 
I wouldn't count it. I think this is probably going to be a decision win for Cejudo, but I think it'll be a pretty clear win for Cejudo. Either way, unless he does get just an amazing finish, I don't think he would really be ready to throw his name in the title picture, but either way, it's still going to be an exciting fight, and to have two top six guys going on the first fight of the main card, that's that's pretty good for us, and pretty we're pretty lucky as fans. I think that's a good fight, though, on the FX card, the main event of the FX card. Now, what's really surprising here to me is the odds more than anything. On some odd sites, the higher-ranked fighter, number three overall, Eddie Alvarez, is actually the underdog. He's going to be fighting against Dustin Poirier. Now, for me, this feels like a fight. This is a fight where when I saw the odds, I jumped on it right away and I put money on Alvarez. If this was a fight that happens back in November when Alvarez was the champion, I don't see any way that Dustin Poirier is even within, like, even within, like, plus 200 as an underdog, let alone now where he's in the minuses. I feel like, yes, the Conor McGregor loss was a very bad loss for Eddie Alvarez, but he had never lost a fight like that in the past. He's one of those guys where if you beat him, you'd have to go through hell to get a W against him. And for Conor McGregor to make it look as easy as he did, I feel like people are starting to sell Eddie a little shorter than they should be selling him at this point. So in this fight, Poirier, he's been looking good recently too. He had that fight with Jim Miller where he messed up his leg, throwing too many leg kicks and getting checked. But again, it wasn't like he dominated Jim Miller necessarily. So for him to go from a close fight with Jim Miller to all of a sudden just blowing out Eddie Alvarez. I don't know that I ex- I would see that coming. Yes, Poirier hits very hard. Anytime you have a guy like Poirier who can hit really hard, there's always a chance that he... It's, it's that puncher's chance, really, but I don't see him getting it done against Eddie Alvarez. I think Alvarez is going to show everybody why he was the champion, show everybody why he's considered one of the top lightweights in the world, and he'll get his victory. Uh, next fight on the card is going to be Chaz Kelly versus Jason Knight. Jason Knight has been looking fantastic of late. He had that one over Alex Caceres. I, I think even with a guy like Chas Kelly, who's got a 17-2 record, what I've seen out of Knight has been really impressive, even if he seems like a bit of a douchebag and maybe not the easiest guy to cheer for. His skill set's great. He's a very tough boxer, uh, really sharp on the ground, very good at taking the back, and really really has a good eye for eye for the finish. Uh, next fight is Christoph Jotko, who is ranked number 9, versus David Branch, the former World Series of Fighting two-weight champion. He's returning to the UFC after... A long time when he had his first run in there he wasn't quite that successful but now he's obviously looked really good in the world series of fighting but the fact that he's fought in the ufc before there the octagon jitters thing isn't going to apply to him quite as much for jotko he's one of these guys where i still don't know how good he is obviously he hits extremely hard but it's hard sometimes with guys like that who are able to finish fights early you don't always know whether it's just like I guess it's hard to explain, but sometimes you can't tell if they're incredibly technical, if they're just really good at finding opening, what exactly it is about them that are that's getting them these early early finishes. And then as far as Dave Branch goes, he's obviously had a lot of fights at different weights. He's looked fantastic of late. If I'm going to have to pick a winner of this fight, I'm going to say Dave Branch, but I say that very unsure of myself because I, what I've seen of Jocko, there's no... It, it's really tough to pick against him based off what I've seen recently, but his opponents haven't had the biggest names, and that's really about all I can hold against him. Uh, the next fight on the card is Marco Polo Reyes versus James Vick. This one just seems like a fight where you're going to have two guys who are just going at it. This is likely to be a contender for fight of the night. I don't know that it's going to win it with all the great fights on this card, but it's definitely going to be an exciting fight regardless. And on the fight pass prelims so far, assuming that there aren't any issues at the weigh-ins, we've got five fights on there, headlined by Jessica Aguilar versus Courtney Casey. Uh, both of these two are really good. I think Casey's a bit underrated, and I feel like she's actually got a really good chance of pulling an upset here. You have Jared Gordon versus Michael Quinones. 
Don't really know a whole lot about either of these two guys, so I'm not going to make a pick on that fight. You have Chase Sherman versus Rashad Coulter. Sherman, I believe, fought Justin Ledette. And I remember watching that fight, but I don't know anything about Coulter. So again, it's tough for me to make a pick on that one. Sherman showed some good signs there, but he was clearly not the better technical striker in that fight. And it kind of showed, but you'd assume he's still getting better. So there's a good chance for him to get in the win column here and look good in the process. Uh, there's Gabriel Benitez versus Enrique Barzola. Barzola, very good fighter. Um, I don't remember if he won the Ultimate Fighter Latin Americas or not, or if he was a finalist there, but... He's a really talented fighter. I don't know much about Benitez, but either way, this should be a pretty exciting fight. And the first fight on the card will be Joaquin Christensen versus a name that I don't even know if I should try to pronounce, but let's go right ahead. Gadzhimurad Antigulov. So, uh, don't know much about him. I'm assuming because he's Russian, he's probably a great wrestler, but that's kind of a lazy assumption on my part, and that's really not helpful if you're trying to bet on this fight. Both Nick and Nate Diaz have been in the news kind of here and there in different fight rumors over the last few months, whether it's been Nate Diaz popping up around um, Eddie Alvarez and Tony Ferguson. Nick Diaz, right now we're hearing about Tyron Woodley, although that fight hasn't been announced, and you'd figure that the Damian Maya versus Jorge Masvidal fight is going to make a lot more sense than that. But what seemingly came out of nowhere, Nate Diaz and Errol Hawani had a special edition of the MMA Hour on Wednesday, or on last Wednesday, I should say. Went for about an hour and a half. There wasn't really any big breaking news out of it, which was a bit surprising because I believe the last time that they did it, which was a little under a year ago, there was some breaking news regarding the Conor McGregor fights. But either way, it was good to hear from Nate, good to hear him be himself. He was cracking a lot of jokes with Ariel. He was had like a bunch of different middle finger statues or even like pictures in his house. And he'd anytime he'd be talking about Dana White, he'd kind of pan the phone over to it and kind of show an image of him and be like, oh, here's what Dana sent me, and it's just a big middle finger. But from him, it sounds like he doesn't seem super interested in fighting right now unless he has a really big money fight that comes up, and I don't know if there's really a big money fight waiting for him. Outside of that, I mean, it sounds like he's having fun doing triathlons. He's making good money in the cannabis business. He doesn't need to come back until until a big fight's ready for him. But the thing is with him, he's not going to make anywhere near the kind of money he's going to make fighting Conor McGregor fighting anybody else. And you don't necessarily know that the McGregor fight is waiting for him because McGregor, we're still waiting on the fight with, or we're still waiting for him to fight against um, Floyd Mayweather. After he's done Floyd, fighting Floyd, assuming that he does fight Floyd, um, does Connor even come back at that point with all the money he's going to make? He doesn't really need to fight anymore if he doesn't want to. And again, for Connor, it seems like he's been a guy where he sets goals for himself. And then once he knocks down the goals, it's just like on to the next goal. And he's never really talked about the goal of being the longest reigning champ or anything to that effect. It was just, he wanted to be the double champ. He wanted featherweight. He's like, okay, fine. Now I'm going up to lightweight right away. Got that. And now it's like, okay, well now I just want to make a ton of money. And whether he wins or loses against Floyd is besides the point. You kind of wonder what's going to really entice him to come back. What sort of fights are going to interest him? Maybe the fight with Nate Diaz is going to interest him, but Tony Ferguson has cemented himself as the guy at lightweight who needs to, have the next crack of the belt. So that's got to be the next fight if he does come back. Not sure how interesting that is, but assuming that he does come back, he does take the fight with Tony. That might not even happen until midway next year, and that could be that could be an optimistic guess to say it's midway 2018. So if Nate Diaz is just going to sit and wait and assume that a big fight's coming, and again, if let's just go on that time. Let's just say that it's... Let's just say it's this time next year, May 2018, Connor versus Tony, and Connor loses that fight. 
do Connor and Nate rematch again at that point? I don't know. That's really the best time for the rematch. If Connor wins, then you can say, okay, maybe we can try to force it into November or force it later into the year. And then you've got Connor versus Nate the third time. This time it's for the title. But again, Nate hasn't fought in a long time. He hasn't fought since he's 202. And that could be a really long time to wait, assuming everything goes right and goes in his favor. And I don't know that you can really make that assumption. But either way, if you're Nate Diaz, if you're making money elsewhere and you really don't care, I guess I guess he can afford to wait. But as a fan, I'd like to see him fight a little bit more. And I'd like to see him be a little bit more active. And I'd like to see him fight before before that late 2018 timeline, which I think would probably be the most optimistic you can give him unless you find someone for Tony to fight in the meantime. Maybe Khabib's ready in the meantime. You're like, hey, Connor's fighting Floyd in September. We're going to put this Tony and Khabib fight back on one more time. If Khabib doesn't make weight, then it's official. Tony, you officially get the title shot, but you didn't actually beat him in the cage. We're going to give you one more chance to beat him in the cage, and then at that point, kind of go from there. But even still, even going off of that, if it's Khabib versus Tony, well, let's just say Khabib does win. Well, yeah, Tony's out of the picture, but now Khabib's right back in it. So either way, I don't think the the Conor fight's coming up soon for Nate Diaz, and I don't think the UFC's going to pay Nate Diaz Conor versus Nate money. For anybody other than Connor, so for that reason, I wouldn't expect to see him back anytime soon, based off of what I heard on that most recent interview. Had there been a podcast last week, this is something that I would have covered at that time. But since we didn't do a podcast the last week, um, I'm a little bit late on this. But either way, I feel like it's still something worth mentioning. So the U.S. Open wrestling tournament was just held. It was held at the end of April, I believe, April 29th or April 30th was when it finished up. And the winners of the of these are going to go into the world team trials, and they're going to have a free spot in the finals. And I, in, in all likelihood, they're probably going to a lot of these guys are going to be the guys who are going to get, who are going to get the spots. Although there are a couple of weight classes where that really doesn't seem likely. But just going through the results from top to bottom, um, the first weight class would be fifty seven kilograms. This is where Dan Dan Dennis had won this in the Olympic team trials and went to the Olympics and represented the U.S. at this weight class. I don't know whether Dennis is done with wrestling now at this point after having made the Olympic team or whether he intends to come back at some point, but he wasn't in this tournament, so the guy who he faced in the finals, Tony Ramos, was able to make it to the finals himself, and much like in that tournament where he had to win some late late matches, and even much like the NCAA tournament that Ramos won, uh, there were a lot of really close matches, but he was able to get the wins in all of them all the way up into the finals where he defeated Nashawn Garrett 5-3. to three. Uh, some of the other placements of that weight class, you had um, obviously Garrett finished second, Nathan Tomasello of Ohio State finished third. Um, as far as any other names, were, you're looking at guys who are still competing. It seems like, for the most part, the other guys in that weight class are all guys who graduated college. Uh, of note, there is Jesse Delgado, who had taken a bit of a break. He finished seventh, which isn't exactly the best for him, but he's got a really interesting style, and the fact that he took so much time off was going to make it tough for him, so it'll be interesting to see if he wants to keep going after this and see how far he can get. At 61 kilograms, Kendrick Maple, uh, the former Oklahoma wrestler, uh, got a victory over Brandon Wright. Uh, Josh Kindig and Cody Brewer had a pretty good match for third place. Kindig got the victory there. Seth Gross finished fifth. He's obviously still in it, just NCAA finalist against Cody against uh, Corey Clark at 133. Um, and outside of that, I believe that's about it for guys who are still in the NCAAs right now. At 65, Jordan Oliver defeated Frank Molinero. Molinero, again, was the Olympian at 65 kilograms in 2016. Uh, this match wasn't exactly a dominant win over Molinero. Now, with Molinero, you have to remember at the Olympic trials, it was against Aaron Pico where he was in the finals. 
and he actually lost a match to Pico, but was able to get him in the in the best of three and got his spot on the Olympic team and finished in the top five, which was a great finish for him. So Oliver won this match. It was a four to four. Uh, so Oliver got the tiebreaker on that, but pretty good match. Zane Rutherford finished third in this, so good luck for him. Obviously, he's been dominating in the NCAA's. Um, and then as far as other guys, it looks as though, yeah, it looks as though it was just him. It was just Zane Rutherford who's still in the NCAA's right now that had a finish at 65 kilograms. At 70, the winner there was James Green, who's been very successful at 70 kilograms. Unfortunately for him, that's not an Olympic weight, but. Nonetheless, for him to get the victory there was pretty big. Uh, Jason Null finished fourth in that weight class. Wasn't exactly as dominant as, as he's been in the NCAAs. You didn't really see that in the U.S. Open. Now, granted, freestyle and folk style are different, and the level of competition is a lot different, too. But still not not the worst for him to finish in the top four there, and he's still got time to keep improving. Uh, and again, that's that's about it for current NCAA wrestlers who were finishing in the top eight in that weight, at that weight class. The big weight class that everybody was talking about heading into this tournament, and they ended up getting the match that they wanted, was 74 kilograms. So this was Kyle Dake versus Jordan Burroughs. Burroughs obviously has been top of the world at this weight for a while, had a very bad tournament in the Olympics, and there was some question marks whether or not he was going to come back, or if he does come back, how good is he going to be? Kyle Dake just keeps on getting better. And so there were question marks on how close is the gap between whether Burroughs was getting a little bit worse and Dake getting a little bit better. How close is the gap now? And we found that the gap is extremely close. This was a match that was scored 2-2. Jordan Burroughs got the win there, but there was some controversy with that. Obviously, Dake is at a point where he he can definitely compete with Burroughs and he can definitely beat him. But in this case, he didn't get the win. But you have to wonder if these guys are still going at it at 74 kilograms come 2020. Where how much better is Dake going to get? Is Burroughs going to kind of get back on his horse and keep improving too? What's the gap going to be like at that point? But at this point in 2017, for them to be this close, it really makes projecting out the 2020 roster that much more interesting. Uh, as far as some other results there, Alex Derringer beat Anthony Valencia. So for Valencia, he's a true freshman, finished fourth in um, the U.S. Open. Obviously, he was the number one seed at his weight class at 174 and lost to Mark Holland. What was this? I, I guess you can say it's that controversial because he did grab the headgear, but it was a very tight match, and Hall got the victory. Um, and as far as that goes, uh, I believe he's the only current wrestler in the NCAA, or the current current yeah current NCAA wrestler who finished in the top eight there. Chance Marsteller finished in the top eight as well. He was a fantastic high school wrestler in Pennsylvania, but never really had the college career that everyone expected him to have between just some off-the-mat issues, and even on the mat, he wasn't as dominant as expected, but it's good to see him finish in the top eight there. Hopefully he can get everything back in order. At 86 kilograms, uh, not too surprising, David Taylor ended up just running through this weight class. He finished first. Bo Nickel ended up finishing fourth. He lost to Nick Heflin in the fourth-place match. Another very notable performance was from Pat Downey, who was on the Iowa State roster for much of the year, but he hadn't been wrestling much. Ended up getting kicked off the team. Um, obviously, very, very active on Twitter. Talked a lot of shit, and a lot of people didn't really take him seriously. But for him to get a victory over Gabe Dean, which he did on his way to finishing fifth, I mean, it it was shocking. But apparently, he was on to something. So as far as where he goes from here, I don't know that he's ever going to be in David Taylor territory. I don't know that he's ever going to earn a spot at eighty six. But for him to show that he can 
finish top five in a tournament like this that's as stacked as it was that was very surprising and very impressive and then obviously Gabe Dean finished seventh and beat TJ Dudley to do that although I believe Dudley and Dean I know, I know for sure Gabe Dean's done I believe TJ Dudley is out of um, out of eligibility as well at 97 kilograms Kyle Snyder was not in this bracket this is the weight that Kyle Snyder usually wrestles at and so the winner of this bracket is most likely not going to be representing the U.S. internationally at, at this weight, obviously, because they're not going to be Kyle Snyder. The winner of this bracket was Kyvin Gadsden, who, I guess, after me saying not going to be Kyle Snyder, Kyvin Gadsden, of course, won his national title at Iowa State by beating Kyle Snyder his freshman year, but it feels like between then and now, Kyle Snyder has just improved so much, and for him to be a world and Olympic champion, as good as Gadsden is, and the fact that he can beat Kyle Snyder, and he has in the past, I, I just don't see it happening in the future or in the present, really. Uh, but he beat Micah Burek to get that. Nathan Burek from the University of Iowa. Obviously, he's graduated. He finished third. And Ty Walls, who normally wrestles at heavyweight in the NCAAs, he, he also competed at 97 kilograms. He finished fifth. And that was about it for guys who had just competed in the NCAAs or who are still competing. And then at heavyweight, Nick Wisdowski, who was extremely successful at a really long winning streak at NC State up until Kyle Snyder beat him in the finals of his senior year. He got the victory at 125. This weight had been, um, it belonged to Turvel Delagnev in the Olympics. Turvel's done with competitive wrestling, so there's a real chance that Gwizdowski can be the top guy in America at this weight. But he beat Zach, or he beat Zach Ray in the finals to get the victory here. Um, as far as other guys who were currently in the, in the NCAAs, I don't think any of the guys who finished in the top eight are current NCAA guys. You got guys like, Don Bradley, Bobby Telford, who's graduated, Tony Nelson. Um, but a lot of interesting stuff here, a lot of really good matches, and it'll be interesting to see, based on this, how the world team trials go, how the guys who finish in the top five, if they're able to build on their performances, make their way to the finals, and even beat the guys who finish first place here. During the week, there were a handful of fights that were announced for UFC 213, which is going to be the International Fight Week card in Vegas. Uh, a lot of big names that are going to be on this card, so I guess the first one that I would I want to get into is the title fight between uh, Valentina Shevchenko and the champion at that weight class, who is Amanda Nunes. Obviously, she's coming off of her win over Ronda Rousey. has been rather inactive. I kind of expected her to get back in pretty quickly, especially considering how fast that fight with Ronda went, but... Valentina won her fight, and it, it was pretty clear from that point that Valentina versus uh, Nunez was going to be the next fight coming up, but I don't know what sort of things were holding it up. Maybe there were some injuries. Or maybe there were some other issues that were going on. Maybe they had other cards booked. Whatever the case may be, that fight's finally booked right now. I believe that Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw is going to be on that card as well, so it's looking to be a really stacked card. As far as breaking down this fight, obviously these two have already fought before. In the first fight, Nunez came out really strong in the first couple rounds. And I feel like the first time I watched it, I felt like Nunes was really fading hard in the third, and obviously Shevchenko won that round. But the second time that I watched it, it almost felt like Nunes, yes, she was fading a little bit, but it was also like she knew that she had the two-round lead and she didn't need to put out any more effort than really what she did. And she was able to survive. She got the win, obviously, 29-28, and moved on and worked her way into a title shot from there. But... If we're going to look at this fight, obviously it's going to be going five rounds. Shevchenko has gone five rounds, and she's looked good in the later rounds. You'd have to wonder, if this fight goes extremely similar to the first time, does Nunez 
just put in a little bit of extra effort in that third round, get up 3-0, and then try to coast for 10 minutes? Is she able to do that even if she wants to? Uh, what sort of adjustments are going to be made on Valentina Shevchenko's part to deal with Nunes? Obviously, we're pretty early on in this. It's I'm going to have to look into it a lot more before I make a really hard and steadfast prediction, but from what I've seen from Shevchenko in her most recent fights, I see her improving every time. And as good as Amanda Nunes is, her game is kind of based off of, yes, she's got a really good grappling background on paper, but it's not like she's ever really just been like throwing people in a fantastic manner and just passing through guards like butter and getting submissions. Like she's very good. She's very good positionally, but she's not going to have an easy time taking down Shevchenko. And at this fight, it's a stand, a stand up war. Yes. Amanda is very long with her punches. Yes. She hits very hard, but Shevchenko is an excellent striker. And over the course of five rounds, if that's how this fight's going to go, you'd have to favor in the long run over five rounds, Valentina Shevchenko. But again, there's more to look at, but at a quick glance, I would say Shevchenko looks to be ready to take the belt and start her run as champion at women's 135, at least until 125 opens up and she either goes the two-division champion route or if she vacates her title, but that's just an early prediction on that end. Uh, there's also a fight that maybe on paper sounds good, but as a fan, I'm really not all that interested at all in, which is Fabrice Overdoom versus Alistair Overeem. If you watched the last fight at Strike Force, you can understand why I'm not interested at all because you would figure that this fight probably is going to look fairly similar to that. Yes, Verdum is a much better striker now than he was then, but I can't expect Fabricio Verdum to be coming out looking to strike with Overeem. Um, maybe the only difference you have between them is that was Uberim that he fought, whereas the Overeem now is a little bit more cautious. He understands that he can't take punches all that well, and he kind of fights on the outside. But even still, that might even make it worse for how this fight can go, because you're going to have both of these guys who are tentative to strike on the feet, uh, Verdum's going to do whatever he can to, get to drag this fight to the ground by just pulling guard or flopping to his back. And it, just based off how that last fight went, yes, Overeem isn't what he used to be, and yes, Verdum is a recent champion, but I feel like this is going to be pretty similar, and that's going to be a pretty ugly fight, that is going to win the fight by decision just because Verdum's going to be flopping to his back a bunch, but I don't, I don't expect this to be a great fight. Uh, some other f interesting fights that are popping up on this card: the fight that we had been that had been talked about for UFC 205 back in New York, Robbie Lawler versus Donald Cerrone. This time, it sounds like it's going to happen. This will be Lawler's first fight since leaving ATT. I believe he is with the I think it's called the Combat Club right now, which is Henry Hoof's gym. It's sort of like the broken up version of the Black Zillions. So he's staying in Florida. Not entirely sure why he decided to leave ATT. You'd have to wonder if the fact that he lost his belt to Tyron Woodley, who's also an ATT guy, if there were some politics there, if there were some sort of issues that kind of led up to that fight that kind of rubbed him the wrong way, or whether there were some issues that came afterwards where maybe he felt like he wasn't being treated with as much respect anymore because he lost another ATT guy and they were giving too much credit to Tyron. I don't know exactly what happened, but that's beside the point. This is going to be his first fight with the new camp. Not entirely sure how it's going to go for him, but obviously it'll be very interesting to see for Cerrone. This marks a pretty long layoff for him to be fighting in July now after what seemed like he was fighting every other month, but it'll be good for him. And obviously, he took some hard shots in the Matt Brown fight, did get the victory there, and then took some even more hard shot or took even more hard shots against Jorge Masvidal and got knocked out in that fight. So this will give him some time to come back, but Lawler's no easy guy to fight, and really for, for Lawler, Cerrone's no easy guy to fight either. So it'll be interesting to see whether... These guys who have both taken a lot of damage recently, whether they're going to be a little more tentative than they usually are, if this is going to be the war that we expect it to be and hope it'll be. 
And then the other big fight on that card that was announced is former lightweight champion Anthony Pettis will be fighting in the 155-pound division once again after getting defeated by Max Holloway for an interim title at 45. He'll be fighting against Jim Miller, who is coming, I believe his last fight was that loss to Dustin Poirier where he checked a lot of Poirier's kicks. Poirier had like a fracture in his shin from kicking him so much, but even still, it was a pretty gutsy performance. He usually puts on really exciting fights regardless. But he's been looking pretty good ever since he found out that he had Lyme disease, Lyme disease and has been treating that. Uh, for Anthony Pettis, seems like a fight that he can win against a, a guy who's pretty gritty, but a guy who, leave, who leaves his openings isn't exactly the fastest puncher, isn't exactly the fastest kicker. And on the ground, he's definitely good on top. He can definitely submit some good guys, but I feel like Pettis can can get can get some work going off of his back if he needs to. So this seems like a fight that Pettis should be able to win. After the UFC 211 car concludes on Saturday night, on Sunday there will be an event on flow on flow grappling. It'll be Chael Sonnen's submission underground event. It'll be their fourth um, their fourth event for this. The main fights in this card are the ones that I'm going to go over. I'll just go over the the four main card fights. Uh, I, I'd say two, if not three, of them have importance to MMA fans. Outside of that, the others are a little more uh, within the grappling community and specifically within the Northwest. Um, the main event on the card is obviously going going to be Jake Shields versus Dylan Dennis. Of note here would be the fact that Dylan Dennis is training with Conor, or obviously has been part of Conor McGregor's training camps of, of late. Jake Shields obviously affiliated with the Diaz's at that water bottle press conference, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they were obviously on opposing sides. The two don't like each other. Dennis has talked shit about fighting all the different guys in the scrap pack. And now at least, even though this isn't going to be an MMA fight, it'll still be a combative matchup between Dennis and a guy from the scrap pack being Jake Shields. So there's definitely a, a good storyline that's going on right there. As far as who I think would win, it, it's very interesting because Shields is a very good wrestler. He's very good at getting on top, especially against jiu-jitsu guys. And once he gets there, he's very good at controlling from there. And you, you'll, you'll see him fight guys, even the Damian Maya fight that he had in MMA, where he was able to get on top of Maya and was able, even though he didn't do a whole ton on the top as far as like passing guard and getting submission attempts, he was able to kind of survive. And against a guy like Dylan Dan, you'd figure if he's able to get on top, he, he'll he be okay. Now, granted, since this is Eddie Bravo rules, I, I wouldn't expect there to be a submission in the first 10 minutes. So you're going to be looking at them getting their good positions, whether it's the back or whether it's the spider web and going from there. Uh, I think it's tough to pick who you think is going to win, who's going to be able to hold on for longer, who's going to be able to, whether it's going to go by riding time or whether someone's going to get a submission. I expect this to be very competitive, though. I think a lot of people assume just because Dylan Dennis is known as a great grappling superstar and Jake Shields has been known for MMA of late that Dennis should have the edge here. But I would not be surprised at all if Shields gets the win. I think this is going to be very competitive, and I really can't wait to see it. Now, of note with Dylan Dennis, he did just fight, I believe it was in the Atlanta Open for an IBJJF championship. And in the finals there, it was actually a rematch against the guy he fought at Submission Underground 3 in AJ Aga's arm. And he won that match pretty dominantly. He was on points, but even still, it, it shows that Dennis is looking good. It'll be interesting to see if he has any affiliation patch for the matchup against Jake Shields, whether it's a straight blast gym one, or maybe he still even wears the Marcelo Garcia one. I don't believe I saw the Marcelo Garcia patch on his gi in that uh, tournament over the weekend, but even still, I think that's another storyline to check out. In the co-main event, you have Paulo Miao, who is coming off of a positive drug test that he he confirmed that the test came back positive, but I'm still not exactly sure what he tested positive for. 
either way he's suspended. But his, his jujitsu game has always been known for like the barren blows and more of like the technical stuff, more of like the speed stuff, not exactly muscling guys around. And either way, it's not like he'd be muscling around Faber anyway. But kind of kind of disappointing to see that he's been suspended from the IB from the IBJJF at this point. Um, but either way, he, he's a highly talented grappler. Uriah Faber is a black belt in his own right. Uh, used his re- uses his wrestling base well. I don't know how he is off his back necessarily, but on top, he's definitely good at controlling. Obviously, he's got a great guillotine. But you'd figure that Meow's style is so much different than what Faber usually rolls with, and with Meow being as decorated as he is, he should probably get the victory here. Um, the next fight on the card is Michael Perez versus Nathan Orchard. Nathan Orchard. Uh, Orchard's a guy who's done a lot of super fights of late, but I don't know that he's a guy who's really got much of a name in, the, in MMA circles. Uh, Perez, uh, again, I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with him. And then in the other fight on the main card, you have John Combs versus Gilbert Burns, who is a UFC fighter, uh, also known as Dorino. Uh, he's also, I believe he had a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu World Championship. I think he was with Black Zillions before they broke up. He's probably still training with a lot of those guys out in the South Florida area right now. But you'd figure, based off his background, he's probably going to get the win here. But I don't know enough about John Combs to necessarily say that with great certainty. But... In a jiu-jitsu matchup, Gilbert Burns is usually going to do pretty well. That's a pretty safe bet. And what I guess would be described as unconfirmed news, not necessarily fake news, so to speak, uh, Damon Martin of Fox Sports, obviously Fox is the um, TV network that's got the UFC deal right now, had reported that Tough 26, which would be the next uh, series of The Ultimate Fighter, will feature women's flyweights, and it'll be run pretty similar to the 115 division in that the winner of that tournament will end up being the new women's flyweight champion at 125. Now, after that it was announced, Ariel Hawani, looking to confirm it, ended up reporting that the UFC, they didn't necessarily say, no, it's not happening, so much as they said, hold, hold, kind of hold the phone on that or pump the brakes on it. So it sounds as though if it hasn't been made official yet, that's what's at least in the works which is very exciting. I think I feel like this is long overdue. I've been talking about this for a while, and Dana White, every time that he'd been publicly asked, would say, no, we're not looking to do this. We're not interested. But as I mentioned in the past, and as I'll say again, we're looking at WMEIMG, who is making the 45 belt, who's been throwing around interim titles like crazy. The idea of there not being a flyweight division, a woman's flyweight division in the first place is pretty ridiculous to begin with. But for there not to be a woman's flyweight division in a company that is throwing around interim titles like crazy and is creating a division at 45 where there's practically no division to be had, it only made sense that the 25 division was going to be made, and it sounds like if it isn't quite official yet, it's it's pretty deep in consideration. It looks like they're about to do it. I guess the trouble that I would see in this is that at least with the first time around at 115, what made the most sense there is that there wasn't a division at 115, there weren't any guys, any girls at 135 who were going to make 115 and who were likely going to be in the title picture, so you can kind of start fresh there and really build out your division. But at this point with 125, you have some girls who are at 115 who are too, who are really cutting down hard to make 115 and would like to move up, kind of like Ioannia and Chechek, for example, the champion. You have some girls at 135 who can't make 115, and so they're fighting at um, 135 instead, like the challenger right now, Valentina Shevchenko. And you kind of feel like Either of those two, in all likelihood, would be the champion at the weight class. Now, granted, Joanna Jacek wasn't a part of the initial Ultimate Fighter, as far as it was, as far as it got the victory, and very quickly after lost the belt, and now Joanna is kind of synonymous as the UFC's one strawweight champion, even though Carlos Barza did hold it for a short period of time. But you feel like there's a chance that could happen again, and 
funny enough, Ioana could be the one again to take the title away from the Ultimate Fighter winner and hold on to it for a bit. Now, again, as I mentioned in the preview for this fight with Andrade, I feel like Ioana's kind of regressing a little bit at this point. But either way, you get the point in that there were some very good fighters who probably shouldn't have to be on a series of the Ultimate Fighter, especially if you imagine Valentina Shevchenko going down to 125. She beats. Amanda Nunes, and all of a sudden, you either have to put her back into the Ultimate Fighter, or maybe, maybe that's what the holdup is. Maybe they're planning on doing a divi- or planning on doing the show at 125. They haven't quite decided what they're going to do with it. But maybe if Valentina Shevchenko gets the win and makes it clear that she wants to go down to 25, maybe then the winner earns a title shot instead of earning the title itself. But either way, um, it's good to see that the UFC is at least making a lot of ground towards getting the 125 division off the ground. Uh, it'll be it'll be it'll be very interesting to see which thirty five is dropped down and which fifteen pounders move up. But either way, this this seems like it's going to be a division that's going to be very interesting right off the bat, as opposed to the one forty five division, which just disappeared ever since that Brooklyn card. I don't know whether to classify it as bizarre or just. I, I guess it could be Paige being Paige, but for Paige Van Zant, I believe it was on Twitter and I believe Instagram as well. She had some pay content that she was doing, obviously with Paige Van Zant and a lot of other celebrities in general but even some of the bigger fighters who have really large fan bases they get deals with a lot of companies where they sponsor their con or they do sponsored content while they'll put out a post trying to sell something and sometimes it'll just be as simple as oh hey click this link these are really good supplements or in this case with Paige she actually made her own little ad for some of the new stuff that Reebok's putting out so I guess based off of what I watched with it they have like a black and white collection or something if you watch the video, it, it's it, obviously it seems like she's just trying to be really sexy about it, and she's she did, but that's Paige Van Zandt. It doesn't really take a lot of effort for her to be sexy about anything, but it was just kind of her prancing around, wearing some of the new Reebok clothes, and just kind of like saying black or white, black or white, and just kind of like in a really weird voice, really weird tone to it. Um, the reaction to it, I think, is probably funnier than the video itself. I think the video itself is just kind of bizarre. It's like, okay, whatever, you're you're selling your Reebok stuff. It's apparently it looks good on you. So if you're a girl, maybe it would look good on you too. If you're a guy, maybe it'd look good on your girlfriend too. So be it. But it was kind of funny to see some of the other male MMA fighters and even some of the female MMA fighters just kind of responding and being like, "What the fuck did I just watch?" or "What the hell is this?" Uh, she ended up taking the video down just because some of the buzz it drew. I, I guess for Reebok, they were probably hoping to just get a cleaner ad out of it and not have as much uh, controversy with it. I don't know if they're too pissed about it. Obviously, it's gotten a lot more attention than it otherwise would have. If Paige just like, hey, check this out. This is the new Reebok Black. This is the new Re- Reebok White. Uh, we're not talking about it right now. We probably aren't even going out of our way to watch it, whereas at least now with that bizarre video, everyone's gone out of their way to see it and... I guess be either find it to be really hot, find it to be really funny, find it to be really bizarre, maybe a bit of all three. Um, it is also kind of funny though. Chris Weidman decided to make a spoof video himself. So he was in, um, I believe it was at a law MMA him with him and Longo have their gym, but he was kind of in the octagon. I was posting another type of video like that, where he's sort of like training the camera on himself and recording a video and just trying to, trying to act sexy in, in the manner that Paige Van Zandt did. I thought it was pretty funny as well, but Either way, as far as what I take out of this, it's just, it, it's branded content. It is what it is. Um, I don't know how well the new black and white collection is doing based off of Paige Van Zandt's little ad. I don't know if it, how it would have done prior to it. I'd assume that 
all the controversy around it has actually helped him. But either way, I don't think it's too big of a deal. Either way, some people are probably upset about because they feel like Paige Van Zandt makes too much money, has too much attention for a fighter who's not even inside the top five of her division, and they feel like it's because of her looks. Yeah, no shit. This is entertainment, as I said before. Hot people generally make really good entertainers. They generally draw a lot more interest in she sells and she gets people to watch her fight. She gets people to, I guess, buy um, the rebuild clothes that she wears. So good on her. Good. Can't really knock her for doing what works for her. So I'm going to be jumping all over the place in the timeline on this one, but I guess I'll just kind of start off with what led to the fight being made. Uh, obviously, the fight fell apart. Um, what happened to the fighter who is no longer a part of the fight? And then um, the fighter who is still on the card, or at least in theory on the card, where where their reaction is. So right now what I'm talking about is the Kelvin Gastelum versus Anderson Silva fight, which is now turning into possibly a Yoel Romero versus Anderson Silva fight, although obviously that isn't booked. Uh, for Kelvin Gastelum, he defeated Vitor Belfort by knockout in Brazil, called out Anderson Silva, and Anderson quickly responded and took the fight. Um, Kelvin just just recently now we're finding out that Kelvin's win has been taken away from him. Obviously, the fight against Anderson was taken away from him after he popped for marijuana. Uh, now that win is being taken away, which I think is the most ridiculous thing ever. If you're going to try to imply that him smoking a little bit of marijuana, and again, you can't exactly prove when he did it, but let's just let's give the commission or give you or whoever is behind all this. Let's just give him the biggest benefit of the doubt and say, sure, Kelvin just took a huge rip out of a bull right before he stepped out and knocked out Beachwood Belfort to kind of imply that that in any way helped him seems to be kind of ridiculous especially when you watch how fast he was throwing his punches how fast Vitor was throwing his punches I feel like if you're fighting a guy like Vitor the last thing you need to do is take something like marijuana which is going to kind of slow you down a bit and kind of make everything seem a little bit slower that's not that's not a good idea if you're fighting a guy who throws punches as fast as Vitor does and if you're going to need to be as fast as Kelvin was to beat Vitor again that's not exactly the most helpful thing so for him to get the win taken away is just it's ridiculous. You'd, you'd like to see this bullshit where, whether it's just marijuana being criminalized, whether it's being illegal, whether it's being considered a performance-enhancing drug, you, at some point this shit has to go away. This shit has to get fixed, but apparently that's not 2017. So Kelvin Gaslam's out of the fight with Anderson Silva. Vitor Belfort, I guess, doesn't have a loss on his record anymore, but he still took the damage. Everyone who saw the fight knows what happened. And Anderson Silva is now looking for a new opponent. Now, granted, this fight, when it was with Kelvin Gaslam, was not going to be a title fight or an interim title fight. And Anderson Silva was fine with that. Well, at this point, apparently, he's getting tired of some of the politics with the UFC. He's pissed that George St. Pierre has a title shot right now when he was told that when GSP came back, he'd get a fight with GSP. So for GSP to get a title shot instead of him, and for GSP to be making getting a fight that isn't against him, both of those things bother him. So he's now saying... That if the fight with Yoel Romero that's being proposed, if that is not an interim title fight, then he is just going to retire. So a couple things to get uh, to touch on right here. First off, the talk with GSP, where he's saying the UFC crossed him and saying that they were going to give him the fight with GSP and now GSP is not fighting him. I don't believe that that's actually an issue where the UFC lied necessarily. I think there's a very good reason to suspect that the UFC wanted that fight. But you have to remember, GSP wasn't exactly... I, I guess technically he was under contract to an extent, but it's not like he was in a position where he just had to take whatever they gave him. They were renegotiating, and GSP, it would appear, given the fact that nobody seems excited about the fight with Bisping, that GSP, in order for him to come back, negotiated the fight against Bisping, and then the UFC decided, hey, well, we do want GSP back. Yes, he is a big draw for us. 
So within this specific negotiation, we're going to have to give them that fight. And that was independent of what they had told Anderson Silva. And obviously they're not going to be like, well, shit, we'd love to have GSP back. But we did once tell Anderson Silva that he'd get the fight with GSP. And so we've either got to, we, we either have to choose between not misleading Anderson Silva or not having GSP back. I mean, if that's where they're at, they're obviously going to say, okay, fine, we'll mislead Anderson Silva. We'll take GSP back. We'll give him his title shot immediately and we'll kind of work from there. So I, I don't know that he can really be all that upset with that. Obviously, you'd like to see what they tell you come true, but this is a business where things change all the time, so I don't know that he can really hold that against them. Um, as far as the the call for a title fight, that sounds more like it's just kind of like a negotiating ploy. I don't know that he cares all that much about getting the interim title shot as much as it's like, shit, if you're going to do all this crap to me, you better give me something in return. And he's just asking for that strap to be available at the end of the night as something in return for him, but... And again, I don't know how his contract's structured either. Obviously, when titles are being contested, there's pay-per-view points involved. You'd figure that Anderson Silva, being who he is, would be getting pay-per-view points even if he's not fighting for the title. But maybe that's why he really wants to have the belt involved so he can get a little bit more, a little bit of extra money. But either way, it the Dana White responded and said he wasn't going to put the interim title up for that. So from here, I guess he's calling Anderson's bluff. Do I think Anderson Silva's going to retire at this point? I mean, I don't know. He's got the money, too, if he wanted to. He's coming off of a win, so it'd be one thing if he just had had just recently lost and was at a point where it's like, yeah, I, I'm tired of this bullshit, but I want to end on a win. But at this point, he's got the win. Uh, unless he... I don't even know that he wants to be like a long-reigning champion again. It just seems like he's been fighting out of enjoyment, and if he's not enjoying it anymore, it's actually plausible that he could retire. But again, sort of like with GSP, where they had to bend to get him back, I feel like Anderson Silva is the same type of thing, especially with as big as he is in Brazil, that if the UFC has to bend somewhere to get him back, they'll probably do it, whether or not it's in regards to that Brazil card or whether they have to bring him back later on, I'm not sure. But I don't I don't suspect that this will be the end of Anderson Silva's career. At this point, it feels like forever ago, I believe it was at UFC 209 when it was officially announced that George St. Pierre was coming back and that his first fight back would be a title fight against Michael Bisping. Uh, at that point, when the fight was announced, there was no date that was announced with it. And it appears at this point, no date exists even still. I think a lot of people suspected that it'd be at International Fight Week. It would be on that UFC 213 card. But more fights are being added to that card. And the GSP versus Bisping fight is not one of the fights that have been added to the card. So at this point... There's a lot of concern as to whether or not this fight's going to happen in the near future or if this fight's even going to be the next fight for the middleweight title. There has been some talk where Bisping said, hey, if GSP's not going to be ready in time, I can fight Yoel Romero, then have a six-week turnaround and then fight GSP. Um, in theory, that sounds great, but if we're being realistic, Yoel Romero versus Michael Bisping likely is a win for Yoel Romero. At that point, he doesn't have to come back in six weeks. And even if Bisping did win, the fight against Yoel Romero, you can't imagine that's going to be an easy fight for him. For him to even be physically ready to get back into a training camp um, anytime soon doesn't seem likely. And for him to even get back into a fight within six weeks, it just seems incredibly unlikely. And beyond that, and this is something that I talked about before when I was talking about how this fight is probably one of the worst matchups I've ever seen in the UFC. I was first describing what makes sense about it and why each of the fighters would want to take it. And on Bisping's behalf, obviously, as the champion, he's getting pay-per-view points as a champion. Pay-per-view points are not guaranteed when you're not a champion. So for him, if you have the option of waiting a couple, waiting six weeks in this case and getting a fight against GSP, which is going to sell much more and being guaranteed to get pay-per-view points on that card, 
versus taking a fight with Yoel Romero in the meantime. There's no reason why you would take the fight with Yoel Romero. And that's even... Even if Yoel Romero was a guy who we did not expect to beat Bisping, a guy who shouldn't beat Bisping, it doesn't make sense for, sense for Bisping to even take the risk. When you consider the fact that Yoel Romero is as dangerous as he is, there really doesn't seem to be any reason why Bisping would want to take that fight. I feel like he's bluffing when he's saying that he's going to take that fight. And so what we're really going to have to wait on in the middleweight division is when GSP is finally ready, when Bisping is finally ready, when they finally get this fight put together. But it's frustrating to know that it doesn't seem like July is going to be the date for it. I don't know what other dates the UFC has planned in the future, whether they're going to be looking to push push this into August, if they're going to push it all the way back to October. But you'd like to see this fight signed up very soon. The middleweight division, uh, obviously with Yoel Romero and Anderson Silva, there was talk of those two fighting in the meantime. If you're looking at who's going to be the next contender, that could really throw a wrench into it. If, if Yoel and Anderson do fight, which I don't think they will, and Anderson wins, that could be incredibly um, problematic for them. Because, um, again, you've got guys like Robert Whitaker. Jacare, unfortunately, isn't a guy you'd consider next in line now, but I think Jacare's... If Jacare looks good in his next fight, he's going to be right back in the title picture, but you still got him floating around there. You've got Luke Rockhold. Uh, Gegard Mousasi, I don't know whether or not they're going to be able to resign him, but he getting that very iffy victory over Chris Weidman, but still on paper, he got the victory. Uh, he's a guy who you figure should be in that picture. Yoel Romero, obviously. There's just so many guys who are waiting on this title shot, and the fact that the title fight hasn't been booked is really holding up the division. Because if you can book that title fight right now, let's just say it's booked for August, then you can start saying, okay, well, we've got Robert Whitaker, we've got Yoel Romero, we've got, well, we maybe have Gegard Mousasi. Um, we can still get Chris Weidman into the mix. Uh, I don't know if they're going to have you all Romero fight again or if they're really going to say, okay, fine, well, we've got the fight book for August. Uh, you can expect to fight for the title in December or early next year. Are you good with that? Yes. Okay, fine. We'll stash you away, and then we'll find the next contender in the meantime. But at least at that point, then you can start doing some matchups with the top guys in middleweight and start to clear that out. I think Luke Rockhold's involved there, too. I don't remember if I mentioned him. But you can really start clearing out that division and kind of making sense of who deserves to be at what point in the rank. But until that fight's booked, it's kind of hard to set your timing and all that, and it's really frustrating to see that these guys still haven't booked the time of their fight. This fight was bad enough when it was first announced, and that it made no sense, and it was already enough of a drain on the division. But the fact that they haven't booked it yet, it's just, even, it's just pushing the division back even more, and it's really unfortunate because one of the things that I would always say when people would say, oh, the UFC, it's just about entertainment. It's just about selling tickets. It's not a sport. My question would always be, okay, that's interesting that you say that. Um, tell me which weight class you feel like the real champion is not holding the belt. And generally people would be like, okay, well, I mean, I guess the best guy is holding the belt at every weight class, and you you, gen- you would genuinely feel like that's the case. Uh, middleweight, that hasn't been the case for a while. Yes, Michael Bisping did get that victory over Luke Rockhold, who was considered the top guy at the weight class. Um, that obviously moved him to one-on-one one with Rockhold. Rockhold obviously had finished him in the first fight. But hey, that's a legitimate win. You can't take that away from him. But then the next fight's against a retiring Dan Henderson who's not even in the top 10. And now we're still waiting for him to fight against a guy coming out of retirement who hasn't fought in over three years, who hasn't even fought at the weight class. And it's just like, you, you feel like there's just a lot of, I don't know if you would say dishonesty, but there's just a lack of really, it just doesn't feel genuine. It doesn't feel right to say that Michael Bisping is the middleweight champion. You feel like there are a lot of guys who are better than him, and Yuval Romero is included, and the fact that we might not see what I feel like is a legitimate title fight at middleweight between when he won the title, which I believe was back in July, all the way up until maybe early even next year, it's that 
that shouldn't have happened. It can't happen, and I really hope it doesn't happen again in any other weight class. I hope that the UFC learns from this debacle and it doesn't happen again. Picking this week's promo of the week was a little bit difficult for me in that Nate Diaz obviously had his hour-and-a-half interview with uh, Ariel Helwani that drew a lot of attention for him to just get that much attention around him. Generally, that would be enough for him to get promo of the week, if not promo of the month or more. The biggest problem I have with it, though, is that, yes, it was a great interview. Yes, it was entertaining. But there wasn't really any selling point. There wasn't ever, okay, now you're interested in me, and I'm fighting at this point, and tune in, buy the pay-review card, and so be it. They really weren't promoting anything other than, here's Nate Diaz being Nate Diaz. So for that reason, I'm not going to give him the promo of the week this week. Who I will give it to, though, and this didn't happen this week, but it's obviously relevant with the card coming up for UFC 211, is Jorge Masvidal. Now, when the fight between Masvidal and Mayo was booked, the general assumption from everyone was just like, oh, it's going to be another Damian Maya fight. He's going to take the guy down. He's going to take his back. Well, he's going to pass his guard. He's going to take his back. He's going to work for a rear naked choke. He's going to get him in a rear naked choke. He's going to get the finish. He's going to get the win. And he's going to be considered a top contender for the welterweight title once again. And hopefully this time he actually gets the title, the title fight. But in some recent interviews, Jorge Masvidal has really confidently and really strongly come out and said, hey, look, you guys think that Maya's going to do that to me. He's not. He's not going to be able to take me down. I'm incredibly good on the ground. I'm very difficult to beat. I'm very hard to hold down. Even if Maya gets me there, I'm I'm going to get out. He's not going to be able to do anything. And to be quite honest with you, even though I still believe that Maya's going to win this fight, even though my pick hasn't changed, I've actually gotten a lot more interested in this fight than I initially was. When I initially heard the matchup, Damian Maya versus um, Jorge Masvidal, it's like, okay, it's fine. It's just another Maya fight. I enjoy watching Damian Maia fight because what he does is so different than almost anyone else. There aren't very many guys where you go into a fight knowing that they are so good at one specific area of the game and they find a way to drag people into it and always find a way to win. And even with as many people at the UFC level, I mean, if you're a purple belt, you're very low-level grappling at the UFC level. There are a lot of black belts in the UFC. So for a guy like Damian Maia to just be ragdolling black belts around, that's very exciting to see. But even on its own... It was still just another Damian Maya fight until Jorge Masvidal opened up his mouth, started talking about how he's going to be different. And I feel like e- even I, who have seen both of these guys fight quite a bit, I feel like this fight's a lot more interesting now than it was before because of what Jorge Masvidal has had to say. So for that, I'm going to give him promo of the week because, again, a big part of promotions is making a specific matchup be interesting more so than just making yourself be interesting. Jorge, now you've been tweeting about money tour. What is the money tour? What is it? What are you talking about, bud? The, the easy money tour, I can't... The game is to be sold, not told, so I can't get in full detail of that. <laughs> but it does mean easy money and other aspects of the game. But the book is coming out soon where I will be explaining everything. Make sure you get the book. It's coming out everywhere. Walmart, Kmart, all the stores are going to be at. So make sure you get the book. So when we think about your fight with Damian Maya, the question is... Why can you, Jorge Masvidal, stop what Maya's been doing when no one else has been able to even slow him down? Oh, you know, you probably better than most people know why, because there's this key ingredient called wrestling that none of them other dudes possess, you know? I'm not saying I'm the best wrestler on the roster, but defensive wrestling, I, I can more than hold my own with uh, anybody in my division. So I'm just here to get and to show the world, you know? Just how the world was surprised when I fought Cowboy. They were thinking that my head was going to be decapitated and they were sorely mistaken, they're going to find out just how good my grappling is defensively come May 13th. 
So, Jorge, is that what you need to do here in this camp? Is that what you've been working on, You basically your jiu-jitsu uh, and your defensive wrestling? No jiu-jitsu, just my, just my wrestling, my regular wrestling. Just, you know, put my mouthpiece on, get a couple hard rounds of hand fighting, and then start wrestling situations. and it's Just wrestling, really. You know, the, the jiu-jitsu, I, I don't fall into this position. So I go with jiu-jitsu guys. If they catch me, they catch me. But the, the way that... Uh, my game is I, I am usually not having to defend too many submissions because I got the guys on their backs trying to throw up submissions. But I'm not I'm not a guy that gets like out wrestled in the mat usually, you know, unless I'm like in a wrestling program university or something like that. You, know? you said of the titles the biggest money opportunity. Let's talk about the champion Tyron Woodley. He's another ATT guy. I know he doesn't train in Florida, but are there any issues fighting him as the champion because you both represent the same gym? No, not not at my end or at Tyrone Woodley's end. You know, we're both uh, we're both good friends. I mean, I, I get along just fine with Woodley. He's actually shown me a lot of things in the past, and I've worked with him in the past plenty to help him get ready for fights. So there's no hard feelings if if uh, me and him had to scrap. You know, it's it's like I've said before. You know, I'm LeBron and he's Dwayne Wade, and we split up teams. We meet at the finals. We're, we're gonna sit out because we were teammates at one point. Hell no, I'm 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 here to get this money. You know, I got kids to feed. Jorge, the beauty in you is that you do not hold your tongue for anyone. So earlier you mentioned that you're curious to see how George St. Pierre will look now that he's fighting under USADA. Is that just because of suspicions that you have about him in that regard? No, not really. It's not like I... I, I it just me, personally, I'd rather be safe than sorry, and I, and I want to see everybody doing the USADA regime. That's what I want to see, you know? Because a lot of guys were looking like super soldiers, like they were on other planets, not just physically, but in the ring, they were looking like, man, this guy's got a lot of special explosive ability. Now, via USADA, these guys, man, they look burnt out, you know? And you guys know what I mean, man. Maybe you guys can't say because you live on TV, but you guys know exactly what I mean. A lot of these dudes <laughs> look like they don't belong in there, you know? Not just their physical makeup, but how they're moving in there, their endurance, your power. A lot of guys that were good grapplers that I was seeing mall guys up for five rounds hard, grappling, picking guys up, slamming them. Now they got one round in them and they're breaking, you know? So it's it's not a coincidence. It's hard to do what you shot them. So I can't I and, and I always say this that I'm making the UFC great again. I can't take all the credit. Big shout out to you, Sada. Jorge, good luck in your upcoming fight.